Well, we return to our study in the Fundamentals of the Faith. And go ahead and you can turn to page 25 in your workbook. And while you're turning there, you know, last time we left off, that was the end of chapter 2, obviously. And we've looked at two verses. Chapter 1, chapter 2. Chapter 1. Who has chapter 1? In your head. Or from your notes. Very good. That's that's verse 2. That's okay. That's 2 Timothy 2.15. The first one is 1 Timothy, 2 Tim, Timothy 3.16 and 17. So we've looked at Two verses, scriptures from God. Do we believe it's from Him? Do we believe it's true? How you and I answer that has a direct impact in everything we do, including our studying. And how we study has an impact on how we glean those truths from the Bible. So tonight we're going to look at a very important verse that David said in his prayer to the Lord after offerings were taken for the temple, getting ready to build the temple, and they were looking for money, got the offering. David said this in First Chronicles 29, 11, For you, O Lord, are the greatness and power and glory and victory and majesty. For indeed the heavens and the earth are yours. For yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. I love that verse. That's such a great verse. There's a perfect verse for you and me to remember about God's attributes because He lists in His worship power and glory. He also lists greatness and sovereignty in these verses. You know, we spent... Much of the time on the first two chapters, you know, when you think about it, it's mostly informational, wasn't it? You know, where the Bible came from. We had scripture in there, of course, and, you know, how to study the Bible, very informational. And the purpose is to build a really strong foundation for you and me for the Bible's validity and authenticity of what lies ahead for us in our study and in your personal study. So we want to have a very strong foundation of the truth and how to study because we're going to start navigating through these particular in this chapter and the next two weeks today and next week we're going to look at God's attributes and how they apply to you and me really good really really good because you know our theology always shows itself in our behavior what we believe all comes from the inside of us and shows itself in our thoughts, our speech, and our conduct. And so we want to get this right. We want to get this right about who God is. A.W. Tozier said this in 1961. You've probably heard this before, a very classic quote. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, unquote. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. 
Why would he say that? Because we flow from there. We go from there. So the idea is to think about God rightly and to think about God correctly. Because, you know, we tend to move toward a mental image of God in our minds. Everybody here, including myself, we have a mental image of God. Whatever that is. Something. Something's there for us. We want to make sure it's right. And the Bible's going to help us with that. So as we look into this, look into your notes, it says introduction. In the religions of today's world, there are many so-called gods and just as many opinions about what God or God is like. Okay. For example, the Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon's view of God, is that God the Father was once a man, but became God. That's their view. There's no Trinity, no Father, no Son, no Spirit. And men who are good men, worthy men, will then one day become gods. That's the view from the Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or Mormons. That's their opinion. Jehovah's Witnesses, which is the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, their view of God is that He is one person called Jehovah, but there's no Trinity. I don't believe in a Trinity. As a matter of fact, Jesus is the first thing that Jehovah created. So in their mind, Jehovah, Jehovah created Jesus. Jesus is a created being. New Age, some of you may have heard of New Age. You know, they would be into Eastern mysticism, Hinduism, paganism, popularized by Shirley MacLaine. I'm probably going to date myself. <coughs> uh, Shirley MacLaine's an actress, popular basically in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. She popularized New Age. New Age has no holy book. It's basically astrology, mysticism, and magic. So what's their view of God? They view God as everything and everyone. That's their view of, of God. Judaism. Who's the founder of Judaism? The Abraham. Mm-hmm. Remember we went through our biblical timeline? When was that? Gosh, I had a month ago. Well, he's the founder of, of Judaism 4,000 years ago. Judaism's view of God is that he's spirit all-powerful, eternal, personal, compassionate. Sound good so far? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But there's no Trinity. Buddhism, the founder is Buddha, around 525 B.C., of course, in India. Buddhism's view of God is mostly atheistic, atheistic. There is no God. They don't believe in a God or any type of spiritual being. One more, and we'll get back to our notes, is Islam. The founder of Islam is Muhammad. In 610 A.D. in Mecca, Islam's view of God is that Allah is one. Writings include the Quran, written in Arabic. 
And God revealed the Quran to Muhammad through the angel Gabriel. So they view God as a severe judge and as not loving, always trying to appease him. Now think about what they're, they've done and are doing. Now back to our notes from those views and opinions, and there are a lot more. For time, I didn't want to go through the list of them. But the Bible, on the other hand, claims to be the revelation of the one true God. The Bible never tries to prove God. It simply states in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. That's why chapter 1 is so important in our study. The Bible came from his mind, and he revealed it through inspiration to men as he released his knowledge and words to men to reveal himself on the pages of Scripture. So how we view that is how we're going to view all of the doctrines that we're going to talk about. All of the things that we've learned, all the things you'll hear that obviously aren't in this book, conversations with people, friends, family, neighbors, whatever they say, whatever our friends say, we want to run through the grid of the truth. What are they saying? What does the Bible say about that? That's the idea. In your notes, this is from Charles Spurgeon when he was 23 years old. He wrote this in 1855. Plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial, as devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. Unquote. That's very good. See his point? Spend more time with God from Scripture. He'll bring comfort and peace and calm because of what that book says and the person who wrote that book from Scripture. Arthur Pink said this. Arthur Pink is from the 1900s. Quote, Something more than a theoretical knowledge of God is needed by us. God is only truly known in the soul as we yield ourselves to Him, submit to His authority and regulate all the details of our lives by His holy precepts and commandments. Unquote. Yield ourselves. Submit ourselves. Regulate ourselves. That's very hard for us. That's very difficult for us. Because we want our own desires, don't we? And our own dreams, so to speak. Very difficult. Let's look at a couple of things that are true about God according to Psalm 89, 7 to 8. Let's read these. Mark, I'm going to start with you in the back, please. Mike, and we'll go to you if you'd like. Isaiah 43, 10. Michelle, if you don't mind, Isaiah 42, 8. Let's go back to Roman numeral A. According to Psalm 89, 7 to 8, let's list two things true of God. Mark, whenever you're ready. Okay. But God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones. 
the awesome above all who are around him. O Lord, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. What are two things listed there that Mark read that's true about God? Two things that speak very clearly and loud. He is to be feared. And what are his to be feared? Why of what two attributes? He, you read two attributes in there. Mighty and faithful. He is mighty. God is great and impressive with his power. And faithful, that's devoted, that's loyal, uh, trustworthy, really important attributes about the Lord he's revealed about himself. So when he makes a promise to us, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, he's faithful, he's trustworthy, he's loyal. He's going to do that. And when the Bible says that if you believe on me, you'll have everlasting life, he'll do it because he's got the power to raise people from the dead. Sound familiar? Easy to forget. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Let's look at Isaiah 43.10. Mike, what statement is made that points to the fact that there is only one God? Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Exactly. No God before or after. Exactly. Why is that important? Because we were just reading from people who have other opinions that they believe in other things. Yeah. There's a wonderful section in Psalm 115, verses 1 to 8. Here's basically what it says. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but your name be given glory. Because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why do the Gentiles say, where is your God? But our God is in the heaven and he does as he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold made with hands. And then the writer lists this of their idols. They have eyes that they do not see. They have ears that do not hear. They have mouths that do not speak. They have noses that do not smell. They have hands that do not handle. They have feet that do not walk. Those who make them are like them. Also those in this who trust in them. Isn't that interesting? The writer lists, where is your God? He's in the heavens does whatever he pleases because of his mercy and truth. All these other people who trust in these other things are just like those idols. Can't see, can't hear, don't speak right. Very important. And Mike, what you said is right. There was no God before or after him. He's always been, always will be. He was existing before any gods were made. 
What is it that God will not give to another? Isaiah 42, 8. Michelle? I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. That's good. Okay. What is it that God will not give to another? His glory. Now, isn't that something in yours and my mind you think, well, is he just wanting to be a glory hog? Is God just wanting glory because he needs it? Does he want glory because he desires it? He definitely deserves it. Absolutely, Roy. Well, first of all, God doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our prayers. He doesn't need that from angels. He doesn't need it from anything or anybody, anytime. He's not influenced by anybody, and He's not counseled by anyone. So why would He say, I will give my glory to no one? Because He wants us to perceive His unique value. God is unique. And only He deserves that praise and glory. No one else. That's what He wants from us who are His children. And basically His glory is the sum of all of His attributes and all of the fullness of all of His majesty in there. Basically the God's glory, as we'll talk a little bit more in a little bit, is the decorum of all of His attributes. Holiness is the decorum and His glory flows from there. He's the only source that can give us true joy. That's what He wants from us and doesn't want for anybody else. To go to anybody else. Okay? That's our setup for the, for the chapter. Any questions? Any thoughts? So far, so good? Okay. Let's look at Roman numeral 2, the importance of knowing God. Surely we're going to jump up here and look at John 17, 3, and we're just going to go right across the road. You might just kind of look ahead. If you don't mind reading, if you don't want to read, you don't have to. You can pass along, but we'll just kind of go through these and read them as we go. Okay, what's the importance of knowing God? John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know the only true God and Jesus whom they have sent. Why is it important? Good. And what does he give? He gives us eternal life. So let's flip that. So then would it then be true that then not knowing him would not give eternal life? Yeah. That's why it's important. Knowing Jesus is an experience that He is the only true God. That's an experience. You guys remember when you got saved? You don't need to know a date to be saved. But do you remember when things started becoming clearer as a Christian in your mind and you were experiencing things not before? Things you didn't see before you were seeing? Things that you thought were right were not true? 
experiencing His salvation and love and kindness. Okay, that's experiencing knowing the Lord Jesus. The one who knows Jesus knows God and has eternal life. That's the point. That's the importance of knowing God. So flip it. The one who doesn't know Jesus, doesn't know God, doesn't have anything. Even though they may say so. Rather than boasting in wisdom, might or riches, what one thing does God say a man should boast about? Jeremiah 9.24 But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I do life, declares the Lord. Good. What one thing does God say a man should boast about? Very good. He understands and knows the Lord. How can we understand an incomprehensible God? Well, we can't. And we can't. We can understand what He's revealed the best we can. So what we understand there gives us something very tangible of what we know about God. The two are connected, aren't they? Like, you know, a person, like if I were to describe Roy, and you guys had never met Roy, you didn't know him. And you'd say, well, what's he like? And I could start describing Roy's features, and I could describe his height, best of my ability. I could describe who he's married to, describe his family. But here's what you would want to know the most. What's he like? Roy's very kind. He loves football. He loves football. He's a good listener. He cares about you. Okay, you'd start you'd start to pick up on his character. That's the point of Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. The more you and I know the Lord, the more we understand. And that knowledge will continue to grow. Were the Israelites, for the most part, not all, but were the Israelites people who obeyed or disobeyed God in the Old Testament? What Marlene said. She disobeyed. Okay. Here's what God says about them in Jeremiah 4. He says, For my people are foolish. They do not know me. They are silly children. And they have no understanding. They are wise to do evil and to do good. They have no knowledge. That's how God described His children who were disobedient. So when we disobey, well, we're not only insurrectionists, but we're also showing we don't love Him and we're acting silly when we disobey. That's who we are. And so back to the point of... uh, 
knowing God. Let's tie in with page 26. There's a Tozier quote that wraps up that thought. The right conception of God is basic, not only to systematic theology, but to practical Christian living as well. I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God, unquote. See his point? How would you explain that quote to somebody in your own words? It's okay to talk back here. It's okay. How, how would you explain this quote to somebody in your own words? What's Tozier saying? That's right. So if I'm not doing that, what's Tozier saying about that? There's error. In, in, <laughs> in what? Our in our doctrine. There you go. There you go. Yeah, what we believe always shows itself in behavior. We can't get around that. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Out of the mouth, the heart speaks. For from within, out of a man, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, lewdness, foolishness. It's all inside. So what we think inside shows itself in time. That's his point, and that's the importance of knowing God. So importance is eternal life and one can boast that he knows him. All right. How can one know God? Let's read verses 8 through 10, please, in John 14. What did Jesus say about the means for knowing God? Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Good, thanks. Uh-huh. What does Jesus say about the means for knowing God? What's the means? How do I know God? Jesus. Got to know Jesus. Got to know Christ. That's pretty simple, isn't it? You know, it's not simple. The world doesn't believe that. If you and I believe that, that's because the Holy Spirit has drawn us to the Father through the Lord Jesus by the gospel and the power of it. But that's the means. That's the only way. There's no other way. There are no other means. There are no other seven sacraments to uh, get grace for a means. There's no baptism. There's no communion for means to get grace. 
There's no church activity or being in a Bible study as a means for grace to know God. It's all through Christ. And He said, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. Very basic Christian doctrine is that of Christology of knowing Christ, the Lord Jesus. We hear that doctrine a lot, and that's good. But we need to always hear it because we have a tendency to drift. We have a tendency to get off a little bit, just a little bit, and kind of stay on that a little bit. And through time, we're off in a ditch because we didn't go back to the truth. So we need to be reminded of that. What does Paul say about Christ in Colossians 2? For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells dwells bodily. What's he saying about Christ? What's Paul saying there? That God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is in Him and body. Very good. It's exactly it. The fullness of the Godhead dwells in Him. The, not the fullness, not just some. Yeah. So if anybody, if you ever get in a conversation with somebody and they doubt the deity of Christ, quote them Colossians 2.9. In Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's what the Bible says. So then if they say, well, yeah, that's what it says. I don't believe it. So you know where we go back to? Do you believe the Bible's true? We always want to retrace our steps. You think the Bible's true? Well, yeah, I do. Okay, I, I do too. What does it just say? In Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. It's saying that the fullness of God is in Christ. That's why our first two chapters are so important. We're always referring back to the truth. To talk about the truth. The writer of Hebrews says that God has spoken to us in His Son. How does he describe Him in Hebrews 1.3? Rick, that's yours. It's okay. Hebrews 1.3. John, we're going to skip over to you for the next one if that's okay. Um, how does he describe Him? Hebrews 1.3. Okay. Anybody else there? Yeah. Do you have it, Rick? He's just about there. You you almost there? Okay. No, one three. Hebrews one, verse three. Yeah. Whenever you're ready. imprint of his nature and is upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, 
he sat down on the right hand of, of the majesty of, on high. Very good. How does he, the writer of Hebrews, describe the Lord Jesus? That's right. The radiance of the glory of God. What does that mean? Yeah, his glory, brightness of his glory, radiance. You said right. His radiance was so powerful that you couldn't look at him. Man, it's not coming from there, but. But our systematic study tells us that when Moses met him at the burning bush, and at the Mount of Transfiguration. Right. So, what's it saying? There's something else in there. He described him this way, and what is he? Called exact imprint. He's the exact imprint of God. The express image of God. He is as God is. Okay. Why? Because he's God. Okay. Yeah. Jesus is the perfect imprint. He's like a stamped image on a coin or an etching in metal of the image, in this case, of God. The exact representation of God. The writer of Hebrews says. So how can one know God? By knowing Jesus. The exact representation of God. Sound like familiar doctrines we talked about in the past, you've read about or been in studies about? Good. Because that's what the Bible teaches. Not everybody thinks that. Not everybody believes that. The author tells us he, after making purifications for sin, spending time on the cross and dying there for us, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And sitting at the right hand means... You're at the place of most importance to whoever is sitting in that chair. If you're at his right hand, you're, in our case, we would say the same because the Lord and Jesus and Holy Spirit are equal. One. So he's uh, pretty important and pretty powerful and done some stuff for us that nobody else could. That's right. So he made purification for our sins and he is the representation of, of God himself because that's who he is. And nobody else, as you said, Roy, could do it. Nobody could do it. That's how we can know God, though, is through the Lord Jesus. Continuing on page 26, let's look at God's attributes. Sometimes I'll quote Tozier. Sometimes I'll quote Stephen Charnock here in a bit. Sometimes I'll quote A.W. Pink because they wrote really good doctrinal books on God's attributes. Here's one from Tozier. It's really good. Simple but good. He said, do not try to imagine God or 
you will have an imaginary God. That's really, really good. So we always want to go back. Okay, what does the Bible say about who God is? I don't want to imagine who He is because then I'll have an imaginary God. Arthur Pink said this, the foundation of all true knowledge of God must be a clear mental apprehension of His perfections as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. An unknown God can neither be trusted, served, or worshipped. Unquote. So that's why I'm repeating myself with what, what do you think about God? What does the Bible say? Go back, what, is it, what does the truth say about Him? What are its characteristics? How do we know who God is? It's through Christ. What's the importance of knowing God? Eternal life. How do I know that? The Bible says that. Okay? Now, who is this person? Who is this person that revealed Himself to us? We're going to look at it here in His attributes. This is the person who revealed Himself. And we're going to go through them one at a time and take a look at it and then look at some type of application to it. An attribute is a quality or characteristic that is true about someone. Studying the attributes of God allows us to have a limited understanding of God's person. Even though some concepts exceed the limits of our comprehension, Our ideas concerning God need to be as true as possible. So the Father, Son, and the Spirit, there's 11 listed here, are all true of each person of the Godhead. His holiness, His righteousness and justice, sovereignty, eternality, mutability, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, love, truth, mercy note these are just a few of God's attributes God has not completely revealed himself to us why because he's infinite he has more characteristics he hasn't revealed to us yet but we know the ones he has revealed and they're infinite they have no end They have no limits. They never run out of power, so to speak. Page 27. God's attributes defined. Let's look up the scriptures listed. We'll write them down. That best describe the attribute. And then second, we'll look at the application of it. Okay? Okay. One more quote before we get there. Stephen Charnock. This is from his book, The Existence and Attributes of God. It's about that thick. It's an 1,100-page book. It is so good. It's so good. He wrote this. Quote, If every attribute of the deity were a distinct member, purity would be the form the soul, the spirit, to animate them. Without holiness, his patience would be an indulgence to tyranny, his mercy a fondness, his wrath of madness. Holiness gives decorum to all of them, meaning perfections, perfect, all of them, because he's holy. Here's a definition for holiness. 
God's attribute of holiness means that he is untouched and unstained by the evil in the world. He is absolutely pure and perfect. Let's look at Exodus 15, 11. Well, it's very, we can't. Yeah. We, we can't. But with the more we study, we can edge a little bit closer to better understanding, but it's too incomprehensible. Yeah. yeah. That's true. Let's see what the Bible says about it. Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, and doing wonders? Okay, what best describes that attribute of holiness? Majestic. Majestic. Some of your versions may say glorious in holiness, majestic in holiness. It's marked by great beauty is what that means. It's magnificent. He's magnificent in Purity and perfection. He's glorious in holiness. He's glorious in his perfections. He's glorious in being untouched and unstained by the evil of the world. Let's look at Psalm 99, verse 9. I'm going to have you read verses 3, 5, and 9, please. Good, thanks. He's holy. That's right. He's holy. nature of God himself in his spirit. Yeah, good. His holy hill. Good. Okay, because God is holy. We're exhorted to be holy. 1 Peter 1.16 We are to be set apart from sin unto God. Our lives are to shine as a reflection of God in an unrighteous world. So, with all that said, that God is unstained, uninfluenced. He is untouched. And then he commands us to be holy. What's the application here for you and me? The fruits of the Spirit. Which are? The fruits of the Spirit, which are? Good. Faithfulness, yep. Gentleness, self-control. Absolutely. So those are the fruit. Okay, that's first I thought there was eight, and then we kept looking at it. There was different versions, and so we figured out there was nine. 
So manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, one has to be walking in the Spirit. So with His holiness, and we're to be holy, how does that show itself in everyday life? Good. Good. Think he's trustworthy? Of course. Yeah. So when something comes up in our life we weren't expecting, very difficult to get through, could be health, children, family, job, anything. What does God say about that when I'm going to go through the unknowns and this doesn't look good? Trust Him. That's it. Trust Him. Why? Because He's perfect. And He said He'd never leave me nor forsake me. And He said He'd lead me in the path of righteousness for His name's sake. That's what He said. That's what He said. And He does it. Right. I mean, we probably eventually do, but you know, you struggle with it. That's right. I don't understand why we're so weak. Why I'm so weak, I should say. No, we you need to say all. All, all is in there. Sometimes that weakness shows me that I need God and that I'm not God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, yeah, I know you know the answer to this, but I'm going to say it anyway. The reason we're like that is because we just don't realize how far we've fallen. We do not realize how sinful we are. Because if, if we were half as good as we think we are, we would obey more. The problem is we're prideful and we don't have humility. And we want our own way. That's why Jesus said, deny yourself, take up the cross and follow Him. We want our way. And that's why we do it. And so God is so patient. We're going to look at that attribute next week. He's so patient. Because he knows how we are. I think too we can be grateful for the times where things into our lives where there is absolutely nothing else that you can do but turn to him. You know, we we spend so much time trying to figure it out on our own, but we experienced a time where there was just absolutely nothing else we could do. And and honestly it was for me, a very peaceful, quite a life-changing, really. Um, so, I don't know. That kind of gets us off case, but still. That's very good, Mike, because that's absolutely correct. Because he, he will take us to a point sometimes, using your words, there's nothing else I can do. And that's the problem. We want to do it. First. That's why he's got to take us all that way. Mm -hmm. And he's always good when he takes us all that way. He's always right. He always knows where it's going. We just don't know where it's going to go. The unknowns can sometimes be frightening because we just don't know where it's going to end up. But that's so good for us. And to your point, Mike, it's right. That's actually a blessing. It is. Because you said... There was some peace there. 
How would we have experienced that if it wasn't for that? Well, he, good Lord will come up with other ways, but he had those specific things for us. Really true. You ever experienced that where you're there? You know, it doesn't feel too good, but mm-hmm. I understand. It's okay. Peter rest on my soul for God has been good to you. Mm-hmm. God has been my good to me. My soul was wrestling terribly one night. <laughs> and I got up and opened my devotion, just opened a devotional, and that was the scripture. And it just filled with peace. <laughs> I need to hear that. Good, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know why the Lord takes us through tests? Because He's going to make us into the image of His Son. And He as we go through them, He's preparing us for heaven. So that we look to that and we quit clinging to things here. We wrestle with that here. We all do to some measure. Everybody. Hanging on to something. And so He'll take us through it. Because He's good to us. And because He's holy, all of His promises can be trusted because He's perfect. And here's what's really good too. Nobody counsels the Lord. Nobody influences the Lord. Nobody tries to persuade Him. Satan did, Job 1 and 2. All Everything is in place. So we have to remind ourselves, ask the Lord to remind us, do I believe everything's in place in my life right now that's going on with whatever we have going on? Is it, is it right? Is it the way the Lord has ordered this? The Bible says yes. Because He causes all things to work together for good. And He works out all things according to the counsel of His will. Notice, not somebody else's, but His will. So, He's perfect. He's perfect. And we have to remind ourselves of that. Maybe that's a prayer request that we could have for ourselves sometimes. Lord, would you remind me that you're perfect and I can trust you through something I don't feel really good about? Yeah. Praise the Lord. He doesn't leave us like we are. No, he doesn't. Because we're this moment in time, we're not ready for heaven. Positionally, we are. Practically, we're not. But uh, yeah, it's good. Um. I'm going to stop there. There's too much here that I want to cover with you, and I don't want to rush through it on God's righteousness and justice. So we'll pick up on that next week.